But last week we looked at ten areas in which Satan seems to be in control. And yet we concluded that even though Satan is the god of this world and he's doing a lot of things, God is actually using Satan to accomplish his will. Man refuses to see how wicked he is and so he candy coats it and he constantly wants to do that. In fact, that's why one of the reasons we as Christians are hated so much because we make everything evil and the world wants to make it good. But as we begin, we need to remember God always does right. Even when it seems evil. Let's turn to Genesis 18, 25. God never personally does the evil. There's enough evil going around that he can just use what's here for his purpose. We'll be seeing that as we go through this this morning. But Genesis 18, verse 25. Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked. So the righteous should be as the wicked, far be it from you, you shall judge, you shall not judge, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is obvious. God is always going to do right. Another verse, Deuteronomy 32, 4. Deuteronomy 32, 4. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are just, a God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. There's nothing that God does that is not right. God sends, permits, and moves others to do evil. Sometimes he is directly involved in motivating someone to do evil. Hebrews 11 verse 3. Hebrews 11, verse 3. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Everything is done by Him. It's framed by Him, the word of God. Nothing develops outside the will of God. Chapter 1 of, verse, or chapter one of Hebrews, verse 3. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins sat down at the right hand of the majesty. All things by the word of his power. He is upholding. That word upholding means carrying something from one place to another. I'm not going to turn to these verses, but to give you an idea of what this verse means, we have that same word is used in Luke 5.18 when they carried the paralyzed man to Christ to be healed. It was being carried. Christ is carrying the evil events for a purpose. In John 2.8, it talks about carrying wine to a feast. Same word. It's being carried. It's being moved from one place to another, indicating very clearly... God is in control. The same word is used in 2 Timothy 4.13 where it talks about Paul bringing uh, 
Paul requests them things, books and a cloak. He says, bring them to me. The word bring is carry them to me. We can only come to one conclusion. That God is behind all the evil deeds that take place. Yeah, that means, this means it's an active participation. Not merely just a sustaining the action. He is continually carrying along all things in the universe by the power of his word. John Piper says this. God, the Son, holds each and every aspect of creation, including all of its evil aspects, in his hands and carries it by his word to where it accomplishes exactly what he wants it to do. That's hard for us to comprehend when we see so much evil and corruption in the world. How can God be using this? Part of that reason is because, at least for me, I have a pea brain. I can't think as big as God. In fact, Pat reminded me here recently that of the illustration I've used before. Now they have 3D puzzles, so I like to use that one instead of their flat puzzle, but... Anybody ever put a puzzle together? Yeah, sure we have. Have you ever tried to put the picture together or the puzzle together without looking at the picture? How difficult would that be? Very. That's part of the problem, isn't it? We don't see the picture and we're trying to put the puzzle together. The situation is this. God sees the picture and we're a piece of the puzzle. And so we can't see the whole picture. We're not meant to see the whole picture. All we know is I am part of the puzzle and God is placing me where he wants me. Amen. That to me is a tremendous relief to my own mind because I don't have to have it figured out. I want to figure it out. I want to understand, don't you? But it doesn't work that way. Ephesians 1.11 All things work according to the counsel of His will. Ephesians 1.11 In Him also we have attained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And that all things does not have an exclusion clause. Only when it's a good deed. All things includes the bad, the suffering, the evil, everything. It includes every detail of it. Everything is according to his purpose. And to the counsel of his will. Don't you wish we could cross our hill and put my will in there? Life certainly would be different, wouldn't it? We would eliminate all the suffering in our lives. But in some respects, are we not glad that suffering has not been eliminated? Because suffering was necessary at the cross? The word work. God actually brings about all things in accordance to his will. He carries them to their appointed end. The evil events are used by God to bring glory to himself. Here are some things. Let's look at Exodus 9. 
Some of this is review, but I think in this matter of understanding the sovereign God of evil, I believe we need a lot of review because this is a lot for us to grasp. Exodus 9, 13-14 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go and they may serve me. For at this time I will send all my plagues to your very heart and on your servants and on your people that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Do we see the purpose that God is developing here? Now we, we see in God's word that he deliberately deals with nations. But I want you to notice how he writes this. Yes, this is being directed at the nation of Egypt. But notice how it's put. I will send all my plagues to where? Your very heart. It's not directed just at a nation. It's directed as an individual. It's directed at Pharaoh. And then it goes on to say, and it's also directed to your servants. And to your people. That you may know that there's none like me in all the earth. What's his purpose here? He wants to convince a whole nation there's only one true God. Egypt had over 30 gods. And God wanted them to know that there's only one. He also wanted Israel to get acquainted with God. Did they know there was a God? Did they know there was one true God? Yes, because under their servanthood, they reached out and called to God, deliver us. So they knew there's God. But how well did they know God? After they got down with the ten plagues, did they think they knew God any better? Absolutely. After they went 40 years to the wilderness, did they think they knew God any better? Was that suffering valuable for the nation of Israel? Was that suffering valuable for Egypt? In fact, we know that when Israel left Egypt, they weren't the only ones that left. There were Egyptians that went with them. They were proselyte Jews. They had come to realize through the suffering of the ten plagues, your God is indeed the one, and I'm following him. Where you go, I go. Kind of like Ruth and Naomi. Why did Ruth follow Naomi? Through Naomi, she came to realize, your God is the one and only, and I'm following you. I'm not going back home. I would rather follow the one true. Was that suffering good? Naomi lost her husband. Ruth lost her husband. What was her sister's name? Orpah? Something like that. Lost her husband. Through that suffering, through Naomi's testimony, Ruth had come to realize. So why did God send Naomi to Egypt? It wasn't Egypt. What was it? I forget where it was now. It wasn't Egypt. I don't remember. Doesn't matter. In that, pardon? Moab, thank you. Yes, you're right. Because was, Ruth was a Moabite. Um, was that suffering good for her to go there? Absolutely. In fact, with the name of culture, don't call me Naomi, but call me bitter. But boy, could she rejoice later in the daughter-in-law that she got. Her bitterness turned into blessing. So we see here, God is working. The evil events are used by God to bring glory. And the evil was done here. 
It's also to reveal God to others, John 9, 3. John 9, 3. Man was blind from birth. And asked, why is he blind? Who sinned, this man or his parents? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Here's a young man who was born blind. Now, he probably didn't miss his eyesight much because he didn't see. <laughs> now, if you and I lost our eyesight, we'd miss something, wouldn't we? But nevertheless, they were suffering on behalf of this man. He, he had to understand that, hey, you people can see and I can't. I don't know what that is, but it's got to be something different than I'm seeing, or not seeing at this point. It was done to reveal who Jesus Christ was. And since he was blind from birth, it had made much more greater impact than he just lost his eyesight and then got it back. This was a miracle that was done to prove who he was. There's other suffering that comes because of my sinfulness. Hebrews chapter 12. Are we willing to admit that some of my suffering is brought on by myself because of the consequences of my sin. But we get increased suffering because we have a loving God that loves us so much He will keep whipping us until we get it right. Hebrews 12, 3 through 11 says, For considering who endured such hostility from sinners against Himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. For you have not yet resisted to bloodshed striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastened Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Parents, have we ever had a child that was so stubborn that we just kept punishing and punishing for the same thing and we finally gave up? Yeah. It's easy to do, isn't it? Because we're not perfect parents. But God is a perfect parent. And so what will He not do? <coughs> he will not give up. So we can persist in our sin. But He is more persistent. Now, I remember one time with my son when, by the grace of God, I did it right for once. And I remember what the issue was. I know it was late in the evening. And my son was testing who was going to be in control. And he lost. He got a whipping. Five minutes later, he did the exact same thing over again. So we repeated it. We went back to the bedroom and we did it again. Five minutes later, he did the same thing again. So we went back to the bedroom and we did it for a third time. And I share with him this passage. I said, son, I'm going to be persistent because I love you. Now we can do this all night. And I will if I have to. But I love you and I will not let you get away with this sin. Just as Christ will do the same thing to you and me. He will not give up. Well, praise the Lord, that third time was the last one. <laughs> I think he knew I was going to be there all night with him, and he didn't want to go that far. 
But how many times has God done the same thing with us? How many times have you and I been whipped for the same thing? Why are we so stupid? <laughs> but when you realize God's not going to give up, you might as well give in. Otherwise, as I've shared with some people who get in that predicament, enjoy your misery. Because it won't get better until you give in. And do it lovingly. Now, sometimes kids will give in because I don't like this whipping. But they're not giving in for the right reason. And parents, that's what we need to do with our kids. We need to challenge our kids. Not, we don't want to just shape their behavior. We've got to shape the heart that produces the behavior. And so work on the heart. When you get the heart shaped, then the behavior stops for the right reason. Because if we merely shape their behavior, and then when they leave home, you know what's going to happen? They're going to go back to the behavior they want to do. Because now they don't have the whipping to expect. If they're a child of God, God will pick up the whipping where you leave off. <laughs> but nevertheless, they will test their oats. And I think that's the reason why some young people do that. Is we shape the behavior, but we didn't shape the heart. And there's a big difference. James chapter 1. Some suffering comes simply because it's part of the sanctification process. It's part of the training process that God puts us through. James chapter 1. And again, we've talked about this verse. My brother, count it all joy when you fall in various trials. I used to read that this way. My brother, count it enjoyable when you fall into various trials. It doesn't say that, does it? There's a difference between joy and enjoyable. I've come to believe that joy means I am content to go through what God has got me going through for the glory, for His glory. And it may not be pleasant. Because in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, clearly spells out that Christ counted a joy to go to the cross. Was it pleasant for Him to go to the cross? So why was it a joy? Because it was more about me than it was about Him. It was more about His Father than it was about Himself. Only joy can come when we do it for the glory of God and for others. If we do it for ourselves selfishly, I don't want the pain, I don't want the suffering, I don't want the discontent, we will never have joy in the process. We will be struggling with that, I want, I want, I want. Instead of saying, God, your will be done, your will be done, let me glorify you in that. That's where the joy comes in. And that's what this passage is talking about. My brother and count joy when you fall into various trials. The word various means what? How many different ways can we go through trials? How many different ways have we gone through trials? How many yet are still waiting for us? It wouldn't be nice if we get... Boy, I can handle this problem. I know how to do this one. God says, good. We're not going to do that one again. I'm going to give you this one. Right? That's the way it works. Because each trial... In fact, I believe this without a doubt. What comes out of us when we have a trial? The best or the worst? <clears throat> If we're honest with ourselves, most of the time it's the worst, right? And that's why God sent that trial. 
See, as long as it's not under pressure, we ignore it. We won't deal with it. So he puts us under a certain kind of pressure to bring out the worst in us so we can see it and say, Oh, God, i got to work on this. I need some sanctification here. And we commit it to him and we work on it. Because this is knowing that the test in your faith produces patience. Now, how many of us have been stupid enough to ask for patience? <laughs> and what did we get? <laughs> we got trials immediately, didn't we? Let patience have its maturing work. That's what the word perfect means. That you may be maturing and complete, lacking nothing. And if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives it to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given him. So we're in the middle of that trial, that test, no matter how deep it is. Thank God they're not all really, really deep. <laughs> but when they come, we can go to him and ask for wisdom. And believe me, folks, when we've gone through difficult times, I, I plead with God. I need your wisdom. I have no idea how you want this handled and what you want done. And you said, I can ask and I'm asking. And he said, you'll give me liberally. So God, I'm looking for your wisdom. I want an abundance. I don't want just enough to get by. I want all you got to give me. And so when we are going through those difficult trials, we go to Him to rely on Him. And when we're relying on Him, what's it doing to our relationship with Him? It's making it sweeter. And as some of you have shared in your testimonies, I know God better now than I ever did before that trial. And that's exactly what God wants to develop. Amen. In verse 11, if Ephesians, let's go back there. Chapter 1, verse 11. Ephesians 1, 11. This is the part I have trouble getting my brain wrapped around. But in Him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the count of His will. Predestined. Pre-planned by God. The reason I can't wrap my head around it is because right now there's over 7 billion people on the face of the earth. And He has predestined every life, every detail of all 7 billion people. Without failure, what God wants to accomplish in those lives is going to get done. That blow your mind. How I can't keep care of my own life, and God's taking care of seven billion at the same time. Does that make God awesome or what? <laughs> Predestined, which means before He created anything, it was all detailed, organized. Now, we ask, what does that have to do with God's will? Or our own personal will? We'll look at that another time. But even in all that, we still have a choice. God is even using the wicked for His purposes in Proverbs 16.4. Proverbs 16.4. The Lord has made all for himself. Yes, even the wicked for the day of doom. I read something this week in a book that illustrated this to some degree. In World War II, we had some soldiers that were Christians in a prisoner of war camp. 
And the Japanese had the tendency to treat their prisoners like, well, worse than animals. They were dying, they weren't feeding them well, they weren't taking care of them. They were being abused in a way that was just against all humanity. One day pulled into that prisoner war camp was a train full of Japanese soldiers that had been blown up in battle. Dying, bleeding, suffering. You know what these Christians POWs did? They dropped what they're doing and they went over and started taking care of those Japanese soldiers that had been persecuting them. And you know from Kerry Tembu and others who are in those same predicaments, you know what happened to those situations, don't you? There was men that come to know Christ. That Corey Timboom was preaching about what went on and teaching about what went on in the concentration camp and how they were abused. And after she got done sharing, a man came up to shake her hand. And as she looked him in the face, she knew exactly who he was. He was the one that persecuted her in the concentration camp. So I want to thank you for teaching but it is to forgive. Because God has forgiven me. Will you please shake my hand? You know what Corey didn't want to do? And she didn't right away. She kept her hand to her side. Mentally, she did not want to shake hands with this man. But only by God's grace, she was able to reach out and take that man's hand and say, I forgive you. That man had come to be a believer because of her testimony in a concentration camp. Was that suffering worth it? There's one soul that will not have to spend an eternity in hell. Was that predestined by God? Absolutely it was. Now, again, that's another situation where Corey Tendu may have never ever known that. But God allowed it. So that we can see sometimes we don't always see what's happening by the suffering that we're going through. So God is even using the wicked for his purposes. He controls the good and evil in Ecclesiastes 7.14. Ecclesiastes 7.14. And the day of prosperity be joyful. For in the day of adversity, consider, surely God hath appointed the one as well as the other, so that man can find nothing, find out nothing that will come after him. But in the day of adversity, consider, I'm in control. I know what's going on. There are no surprises. Even when evil comes into the world, Isaiah 46.9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, from the ancient time things are not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand, I will do all my pleasure. Not my pleasure, his pleasure. I really believe this. A lot of the things that we fuss over and fume over and consider suffering when we get to glory, it won't even matter. 
In fact, he promises, won't he? He'll wipe away all those tears. All that sorrow, all that pain that we've experienced, we will never, ever remember it. So aren't we glad that this life is short and eternity is as long as it is? Yeah. God is even concerned about the smallest sparrow. Somebody brought that to my attention here recently. Matthew chapter 10, verse 29. I think it was in our counseling group, wasn't it? Jim, one of the guys brought that to our attention. I wish you guys could sit in our counseling group at the mission. I really hope to see some of these men starting to come to church here soon. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? If God can take care of a sparrow, is he not going to take care of us? I don't remember which one of the men shared that. Maybe Jim remembers, but this guy got it right. Man, all my misery and pain. If God's going to take care of the bird, he can take care of me. Eat God and evil, the distressing spirit from the Lord. Just going to turn our attention to it in 1 Samuel 16. You remember Saul? God said, go in there and wipe out this nation, kings, sheep, everything. Gone. They are so evil, I want nothing left. Nothing's ever going to change. Men, women, children, goats, sheep, cattle, everything must go. Well, you know what happened, don't you? Saul went in there and said, wow, look at all these good sheep. He said, sacrifice is mine. We'll just sacrifice these. That won't hurt anything. We wiped out the evil. These cattle can't be evil. I don't know what was going through his mind, but it's got to be what's going through his mind. Samuel says, King Saul, what's this bleeding of sheep by here? What would you decide to save them? God said, wipe them out. You've disobeyed. Well, as a result of that, in 1 Samuel 16, we find that God sent a distressing spirit from the Lord upon Saul. I wonder sometimes, folks, when we have a distressing spirit, a depression, discouragement, can't sleep at night, insomnia, I wonder how much of that is because we are at odds with God somewhere. We've disobeyed Him. Because we all know that when we're not obeying God, we will not have peace. It's an impossibility. So when there's no peace in our heart, we better be doing some deep soul searching to find out where we've messed up with God. Because one thing's for certain in our relationship with God, God never messes up. If there's no peace... Now, I've observed my own life, and, and we can find it in Scripture as well. Sometimes our lack of peace is not so much because of his sin nature, but God is trying to move us in some particular direction. And he'll make us restless till we find out where that is. I've seen God do that in my life many times. But when there's a lack of peace, and of course, maybe you're different than I am, but when I know it's sin that's causing that peace... I know it. Don't you? You know it. Because the Holy Spirit brings it to your mind. Find a similar thing happening with the spirit of Abimelech in Judges chapter 9. He gave him a spirit of ill will. King Zedekiah rebelled against God and he too brought judgment on him because of it. 
As a result of man's stubborn heart, God sends delusion. That's the big one yet to come. It hasn't come yet. Second Thessalonians 2.11 If you're not a believer here this morning, you need to listen to this one carefully. Because the next major event on God's timetable is the rapture. And this verse says, For this reason God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. Now it says should believe. Not everybody's going to believe it. But the majority of the world will. He's going to send a strong delusion. If, if you don't accept Christ this side of the rapture, it's going to get a lot more difficult for you to accept Him on the other side. won't be impossible, but it's going to be a lot more difficult. Now why? I don't completely understand. In Genesis 19, we see that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah to make a point about homosexuality. He destroyed two cities. Trying to make a point. In Numbers 21.6, we find that God sent poisonous snakes. That's where we get the symbol for medicine. The snake wrapped around the pole because the cure was a brass snake on a pole for the people to look at. All they had to do was look at the hill and look at that brass serpent. And there were still people that died. You wonder, how can we be so stupid? Yet, in a sense, is not salvation the same way? Christ has sit on a hill. All we got is look to Him, accept what He's done for us, and yet people still refuse it. That's the picture. Then he said, in 2 Samuel 24, he sent a pestilence to kill 70,000. Again, due to rebellion. David's rebellion. For those of us in positions of authority, we better take careful, be very careful about the decision we make because it can have an effect on others. In 2 Kings 24, he sent raiding bands upon Israel because of their disobedience. Then Isaiah 37, to protect Israel, he killed 185,000 people right now. Quick review in number three, he permits others to do evil. He offered Job to Satan. We've looked at that before, we won't develop that anymore, but and then we have Laban and Jacob and the death angel that it's the Passover. God controls the evil done to others. Satan had to ask for permission to sift Peter in Luke chapter 22. He just not could not and, and why did he go after Peter? I think Satan knew that Peter was going to be the one that was going to initiate the church through his preaching. He was going to be a key figure in getting the church started. He was going to try to stop it. He's not omniscient, but I think he knew what was going on. I do believe it's possible sometimes in our lives that Satan will sift us. But he can't do it without God's permission. God moves others to do evil. In Isaiah 19, we find Egypt went against Egypt. 
David was told not to number the people, and he did it anyways. God oppressed Israel through David's sin. We don't understand why. But if you want us to turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Because in a sense, I believe this is the crux of the whole matter here. 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. As some count slackness, but his long suffering toward us. And here it is. Not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. I really believe that all through human history, from Adam until the very last human being that's ever born, God is so infinite and so wise that he knows exactly what it will take to motivate an individual to come to a point of repentance. And he will do anything he can to bring a person to that point. And so if it takes extreme suffering to get him there, God's going to do it. In fact, look at it this way. In fact, as a missionary, I come to learn uh, a few years back. On the average, you know what it costs to get a church started from beginning until the point where they can call their first pastor? On the average, a million bucks. Is that too much money to spend to win souls to Jesus Christ? When you realize what eternity is waiting for those who go to hell? God loves mankind so much that he will do whatever it takes to challenge and encourage an individual to come to a point of repentance so they don't have to spend eternity in hell. Because what's a million dollars compared to eternity? What's a billion dollars? Well, if we look at our government, what's a trillion dollars? You know, we've we got 16 of them that we're in debt to. That's why they think, oh, it's only a trillion dollars, you know, no big deal. You know with God, it is not a big deal. God could get us out of that debt right now. But he's got that debt there for a reason. What's sad is we don't have any politician to say, we are in this mess because of our sin. That's the kind of president I really want in office. We're here because of our greed. We're here because of our immorality. We need to turn back to God. And yes, that verse in uh, Isaiah 7.14 Pray, humble yourself, seek my face, and I will heal your land. Yes, that's for the land of Israel. But I guarantee you that same principle works in my life and it will work in any nation if they'll simply humble themselves and humble it before God. Amen. That same principle works. So... I fear unless our nation has some kind of a spiritual revival, God's not done making things bad in America. You look at history. In that Bible, from now until this day, there's not one nation that ever got away with their sin. He always brought them to their knees. And unless America has a revival, I believe God, to be consistent with His holiness, has to bring us to our knees. 
and then revival will break out. Revival does not come out of good times. Revival comes out of hard times. You look at America when the revivals broke out. They were going through difficult times. So God's suffering the evil. We see it as evil, and it is. But God sees it as bringing good. Bringing individuals to a point of repentance. And in that process, we grow in our relationship with Him. And that relationship, as it grows will sustain us as times get more difficult. But we need to remember this, and I close with this. No matter how deep the suffering is now, no matter how much the pain is right now, God's going to wipe it all out. It will not last forever. And don't we, when we get into these trials, don't we get into that forever syndrome? This will never change, right? This is going to be this way forever. But how many, I mean, some of them are long. And Glenn, in a sense, isn't over yet. Still can't swallow. <laughs> but so if he never swallows again, do you really care at this point? No. Doesn't really matter. He will again someday. Because he's got to eat at the marriage feast of the lamb. <laughs> at this point in time, does it really matter? No, it doesn't. But I think we've all come to know Glenn well enough to know that Glenn has a much closer relationship now with him than he's ever had. And no doubt that has spilled over into his family to some degree as well. His wife, his children, and hopefully to us as a church. Because I've been praying for some time that God would somehow challenge us to become more evangelistic in our effort as Galilean Baptist Church. I never expected to come through Glenn, but I believe that's where it's coming from. And I want to be part of that. Because as your pastor, I don't have the burden for souls that I wish I had or I think I should have. Now, I guarantee you, everyone, anyone here in this room, if you have an opportunity to share Christ, I guarantee you, you'll take that opportunity and you'll share Christ. Nobody here will shirk it. But are we looking for opportunities? There's a difference, isn't there? We want them to be dropped in our lap. God says, go. That means we have to go and make an opportunity. Amen, brother. And all of our suffering is for that purpose. To motivate us to find individuals that need Christ. It's our responsibility. And through our suffering, as Glenn shared, tried to witness to his landlord at where they work. Wouldn't, have a, wouldn't give him a time of day until she got cancer and he already had it. And two weeks before she died, he had the privilege of leading her to Christ. Was that suffering worth it? Absolutely. There's one more soul that won't go to hell. God knows all that. He worked it all out. Let's accept the fact that God is in control of the evil for His glory. Father, thank You for the Word. These are hard things for us to comprehend because we're so finite. But You're so infinite. And we've seen from your word that you're using evil actually for good. Help us, Father, to respond to it in a way that would please you and glorify you. It's in our Savior's name we pray. Amen.